if you plant that seed of nationalism and love for your people in your children when they're very young, I believe they're always going to come back to it. Hey everyone, it's Odessa, and I'm back to bring you episode 102 of the Assyrian Podcast. Since we're still in quarantine due to the coronavirus, the Assyrian Podcast has also had to adapt to bring you episodes on a weekly basis by doing episodes remotely. I was secretly excited about this because it meant I could finally interview this week's guest, Zelge Aho, who lives in Södertälje, Sweden. I met Zelge back when I went on the Gisher trip to Assyria in 2014, and we had an instant connection, you could say like soul sisters. She is an extremely down-to-earth person, full of wisdom, and has this really calming energy about her. She was our guest host for episode 91 and a performer in this past weekend's Meso Mic Night. She's also a fashion designer by trade and the daughter of the revered Umtanaya, the late Melfono Ninos Aho. In this episode, you'll learn more about the Western dialect of Assyrian, a glimpse of life in Södertälje, Sweden, the places Zelge has lived, including, spoil alert, the U.S. Virgin Islands, her life in fashion, loss, and how she has continued her father's legacy of nationalistic work in her own way. I admire Zelge because she is unapologetically Assyrian, but in a non-traditional way. She marches to the beat of her own drum, and she does it gracefully. One thing to clarify that we didn't during the interview is she mentions the late Naum Fayek. Naum Fayek is one of the founding fathers of modern Assyrian nationalism during the early 20th century, so just wanted to give a heads up on that. Support for this week's episode of the Assyrian Podcast is brought to you by Tony Caligarakis and the Injury Lawyers of Illinois and New York. If you know anyone that has been in a serious accident, please reach out to Tony Caligarakis. Tony has been recognized as a top 40 lawyer and a rising star by Super Lawyers Publication and has obtained multiple multi-million dollar awards. Tony can be reached at injuryrights.com or 847-982-9516. Now without further ado, here is Zelge Ajo. I am the proud daughter of Malfono Ninos Aho and Ogar Izbakan. My dad was a very well-known Assyrian nationalist and poet. I was born in Chicago. I have three siblings. And my parents are originally from Qamishli in Syria, and they got married and moved to Chicago. So my first three siblings were born there, and then we grew up between Boston and Syria, which gives my history a bit of an interesting aspect. What was the decision on your family living in Chicago and then moving to, let's let's talk about from Chicago to Boston? I believe the move from Chicago to Boston was for business opportunities. I would have to double check that with my mom, honestly, but I remember there was a small group of Assyrians that kind of moved around the same time to, we lived in Surbridge, which was on the border of Connecticut, so about an hour outside of Boston. And we lived there for about, I want to say 10, a little less than 10 years. And in that area, there is a pretty, or maybe was, I don't know if still is, a pretty large Syriac Orthodox community. Is that correct? That is correct. So there was Assyrians in Boston back to the early 1900s, if not earlier than that. And there had been a strong community there. And that, of course, I'm sure as well played a role in why we chose Massachusetts. So I remember one of my actual most consistent memories from my childhood is going to church every Sunday. So we lived, as I said, in Surbridge, so there wasn't any Assyrian families outside of us um, until later, Yunadam and his family moved there. And so they were our nearest neighbors. But other than that, for the longest time, the only interaction that we had with the community was that consistent every single Sunday going to church in Worcester to St. Mary. So um, that's a really nice memory I have of, of my childhood. And Assyrianism was always a very huge part of our story and our way of life since as long as I can remember. What did you understand Assyrianism to be or being Assyrian as you were growing up? I think growing up, at least this is how our situation unfolded, um, at least I can speak for myself. 
I was always very proud to be a Syrian, and we always knew that's what we were. We only spoke Assyrian at home. It was very difficult to come into our home and speak English. Our, you know, that's just, my dad always had this line that he would say of Mishraelu Suryoyo. So... Which means like only speak, you can only speak... Assyrian. Assyrian in the house. Exactly. And his thinking was always that we would learn English once we went to school, which is exactly what happened. And we always... There was always a conversation. There was always like a certain music. We grew up on singers like Sarvan Gabriel, Juliana Jindo, my uncle, Nini Blahdo. There's, I remember even the Ninwe group from when we were very little that had children's songs. So there was always something Assyrian going on in our home, even when we would mark the, the anniversary of Matfun Anam Fayak on February 5th and have a moment of silence and light a candle for him. So it was always... From as long as I can remember when I was a child, we just lived very Assyrian. But I don't think it was until later, I want to say till my late 20s, even early 30s, when I turned 30, I think I really started working more closely with my dad and started really seeing more of what he used to do when he would travel around the world for different Assyrian events and seminars and meetings and so on. And then I can say the Assyrian seed that that was planted in me from when I was a child really took flight and then the passion really came in. So lots of feelings around the Assyrian question. I could talk about this for hours, I think. Sorry, it is such a loaded question uh, that I threw at you. But it, there, there's a lot of pieces to kind of pick at from what you're pick apart from what you were saying, because it seems like being Assyrian was a part of your very fabric, your your everyday life and in home, outside the home. And so there was never a, a point in your upbringing where you weren't sure of who you were because you were around the language, you were around the culture. And so that was very much um, integrated as a part of your life. Now, you were mentioning one component of it, which was music and growing up on music. And you mentioned singers like Sargon Gabriel and Juliana Jindu and Nina Blahdo. Now, Sargon Gabriel and Juliana Jindu sing in an Eastern dialect, Nina Blahdo in Western dialect. So for many of our listeners, could you describe what Western dialect is, what Eastern dialect is? So Eastern and Western dialect, which in my dialect, I speak Ma'arboyo, which is the Western, we would call them Madanhoyo Ma'arboyo. And in the Eastern dialect, which you speak, which we say Madanhoyo, you guys would say Laza Madanhaya or Ma'arwaya. They're really just two dialects of the same language. And as you said, I think a lot of, it has been my understanding that most Western Assyrians are in touch with the fact that there is a, an Eastern dialect and we're very aware of it. At least that has been my experience. But I have met quite a few Eastern Assyrians, or actually I've met a few but only heard, but have heard about quite a few who are not aware of the Western dialect. And really all it is is, as I said, another dialect of the same language. So for example, we say Shlomo, you say Shlama, we say... I always give this example. It's kind of a funny one. We say Moro, you say Khmara. Our F is your P. So, for example, Fotho, you say Patha. And your dad was known as Malfono Ninos Aho in Eastern dialect. That would be Malpana. So the F and the P is kind of what is the differentiator there, uh, as well as the ending term. But for example, you said Shla, you said Shlomo. Eastern dialect, Shlama. How do you say, how are you? We say, Eidar Bohat. Eidar Bohat. Eastern, it's usually Dachiwat or Dachiwet. How right. do you say, I'm, I'm good or well? Totono, for a girl. We say like spy, but I but think yours is actually more correct. <laughs> I think you guys have some dialects. Well, the difference too is that Eastern dialect, you guys have a lot of internal further ones. If I'm not mistaken, there's some groups that would say Tawa for example, for Tawu. So once you start to kind of pay attention to and, and really like listen and focus on what you're listening to, I think you can see the similarities. And then I think it's just a matter of time to start to pick up more words. My dad always, well, my dad learned Madan Hoyo, the Eastern dialect, when he moved to Chicago. And he was lucky enough, his teacher was uh, Rabbi William Daniel. 
a wonderful, wonderful teacher. So we always grew up hearing both dialects, which was really a gift. And when you say Madan Hoyo and Eastern dialect, that's just Madan Chaya, so Eastern. One thing about the language, though, that I think is important to differentiate as well, because I was confused about this earlier, was like when people say Western, I'm like, oh, I'm I speak Western, yeah, because I, I live in a Western country, and that's not what it means. So, could you elaborate a little bit on what it means when it's Western versus Eastern dialect? Right. It's more of the geographical Eastern and Western Assyrian Empire. So Western is considered more Syria, Turkey, Lebanon, and then Eastern is considered more Iraq and Iran. And what is the difference between, so you said you speak Maurboyo. So what is the difference between that and saying Suryoyo and Ktobonoyo? Ktobonoyo is our classical written language, which you guys call Lishana Atika. So for example, the Bible is written in Ktubonoyo. Fun fact, I actually learned this today. Malkono at the beginning, he used to only know Ktubonoyo. He didn't know Turoyo. So that's the very old classical language or script that we are taught, you know, when you learn to read and write a language. And then Suryoyo is the same. Suryoyo Marboyo, that's what we speak. This used interchangeably. Yes, exactly. Okay. Like Surate and Surat. Okay, great. Good to know. And hopefully that brings a lot of clarity within the dialects. So at some point after Boston, you end up moving to Syria. Yes. What led to the move to Syria? Because you're already in the US. Usually it's the opposite. People that live in the Middle East, whether there's a circumstance or not, end up moving to Western countries. You were born in the West and then made your way to Syria. Um, I think my dad really marched to the beat of his own drum. He was the original move back home, you can do it, I guess, proponent. And this was what year? This was 1991. So this was, as you said, basically unheard of back then when everybody from the Middle East, like most Assyrians, for various reasons, were emigrating. My dad decided to move back. Yeah, a reverse migration. (laughs) Exactly. So the reasoning was that he, he didn't want his children growing up in the U.S. and becoming completely Americanized. And he wanted them, he wanted us to grow up closer to home, even though at that time, of course, Syria was Arab country. But regardless, it still held, in a way, the authenticity of home. So, yeah, so we moved back in 1991 and uh, lived there. The family lived there as a whole for 11 years. I lived there for 10. And it was one of the greatest experiences of my life. And I wouldn't change it for anything. What did you tell your friends in Boston when you had to leave you like what were their reactions when you told them that hey guys I'm packing my bags and I'm actually moving to Syria so the interesting thing is I was 11 I don't think the enormity of it really hit me and I don't think it can at such a young age I remember thinking this is a place I've only heard about in stories literally know nothing about this place outside of what I've heard from you know parents aunts uncles and so on I don't know, part of me just thought it was like an adventure. I I don't know, but it felt very natural at the same time. Not to say that there wasn't a culture shock. It was an absolute culture shock, both moving there in 91 and even for me moving back to the States in 2002. In what um, ways? So culture shock moving to Syria, first and foremost, none of us kids spoke Arabic and very few people in Syria back then spoke English. And then, so that in and of itself was so difficult. I remember we, if we had to go down to the market, like the local market to buy food, my mom would write us a list in Arabic and we would hand it, we would go down there and hand it to the guy and just stand there like with our hands behind our back waiting until he filled everything in the bags. And then he would put them together for us and you know send us on our way back home because at the beginning we couldn't even communicate what we needed. But I guess just to showcase how difficult it was, um, I mean, we got lucky. We went to an international school, so that helped us acclimate as well, I think, uh, because we still had a a taste of Western life. And then my brothers later went to, well, my youngest brother went to the Assyrian school in Aleppo, actually. And where were you settled in Syria? 
in, of course, Hagia Syrian, Syrian al-Qadimi, which is the oldest Syrian quarter. <laughs> Where is that geographically located in Syria? In Aleppo. So you're mentioning that your brothers went to school in Aleppo? Yes, so they, my youngest brother went to the Assyrian school in Aleppo, and then later he and my other brother, Dilmon, who passed away several years ago, they had gone to public Arabic schools, which was wonderful for them to learn the language. But yeah, going back to the culture shock, lots of things were weird. For example, they didn't have ketchup in a bottle in Syria. They didn't have liquid juice like we do we used to have like powdered tang and stuff like that or like make powdered milk from nido so all those things coming from the u.s even though it was the early 90s compared to how uh, syria was at the time in terms of creature comforts i would say was a a big learning curve and then the culture shock coming back in 2002 which is really weird i never expected to have it i mean i had graduated college by then went to college in syria i went to a, a french fashion design school that had opened in Damascus. Yeah, so that was a really cool experience. But coming back to the States, I don't know, I have a a really funny story that I probably should not be saying on a podcast, but it involves thinking that I can cross a freeway in California, because that's the kind of thing that you do in Syria, nobody bats an eyelash. So there was just small things like that, I guess, that were just different when I moved back to the States. But As I said, going back to my experience growing up in Syria, I think people are surprised to hear this, but I really would not change it for the world. I think what my parents wanted in terms of us growing up and knowing our heritage and our culture definitely worked. And I think we have a closer attachment to the homeland and to Assyrianism in a way because we got to experience that in our formative years. That's amazing because really that could have gone either way. You could have gone there and completely resented your parents and your experience and having them bring you there. But instead, you it was the complete opposite. It was a, an appreciation and a even closer connection to your culture. When you were in Syria, you mentioned that you did college there, fashion school, uh, fashion design. Was that something that was common amongst Assyrians? And What was your parents' reaction, I guess, when you told them that you were interested in fashion? It was not common at the time at all. And I think it wasn't common in general if we would look at our society as a whole, maybe in the early, late 90s, early 2000s. I feel like now it's definitely a little bit easier. But yeah, even now there are some pockets of our our societies where we can have this issue where studying something creative is not necessarily looked at as the best career path. So yes, my parents had concerns about that. You know, like if I went and studied fashion design, would I be able to have a career and, you know, make a life out of that? But they did support me in the end and and it absolutely did work out. And where did your passion lie with that? Like when did you decide that you wanted to go into fashion design? Ever since I was nine years old. I remember I used to give my mom a very hard time (laughs) getting dressed for parties or things like that. And I had to have things a very specific way. I remember I had to pick like the colors, everything had to be like in my favorite colors. And, you know, I would put a lot of thought into outfits and so on and so forth. And then in junior high and high school, it was really cool. We were living in Syria at the time. And So I would get an idea for a dress and design it. And my mom would then, we would go down fabric shopping and accessories shopping for it, for trims and things like that. And then she would sew it for me. So we used to have these collaborative sewing projects when I was younger, which was really, really cool. Amazing. So you knew from an early age that you wanted to pursue this and you actually went through and pursued it. Yeah. And I think it's not that far-fetched. I mean, I come, I have creativity on both sides. I mean, just now telling the story of how my mom used to sew for me. And I remember she used to be able to, she would draw. And my dad obviously is very creative with his words and speaking skills. So I think it's a very good thing to encourage, to encourage people going down that path. And so I see a lot of that now on Instagram, for example, with our different young Assyrian people who have these various artistic accounts or more creative accounts. And uh, I think that's a great, 
a great pathway that they've chosen. For sure. Where did uh, where did fashion design lead you? So fashion design eventually led me to New York City, the fashion capital of America. And after living there and working there for seven years, and I worked at all types of different companies from established brands like Swiss Army and Polo Ralph Lauren to smaller companies uh, that were just starting out. After seven years, I moved back to Los Angeles and worked in a small streetwear and skatewear labels there. So I've moved around a lot. So basically, born in Chicago, grew up in Sturbridge, then Halab, then Damascus for college, then LA for a year and a half, New York for seven years, San Diego for a year, I skipped over that one, and then back to LA for, gosh, maybe four years or so. And then also live in the US Virgin Islands. Oh, yeah, (laughs) I forgot about that one. Like the only Assyrian, I think, who has lived in the US Virgin (laughs) Islands. I could be wrong, but (laughs) I think you might be right. (laughs) I did that for six months. So I think I've always had wanderlust in my system. But when I moved to Sweden, almost four years ago, I moved with the intent of this being the last place that I moved. So that was my hope and prayer. So we shall see. So far, so good. <laughs> so when your fam- you and your family moved back from Syria into the U.S., it was Los Angeles that you all first went. And from there, you traveled to a few different places. Exactly. As you decided to pursue your career and having that lead you to different locations, what was that like with your family? And the reason why I ask this is because generally, or I guess stereotypically, Assyrians come from very strict households and especially for women, strict households. And so what was the experience like when you were moving and living on your own? Yes, back then it was not very common to let a daughter go and study in a different city or work in another city. But I think what happened was that my parents really recognized that the job market for what I had studied in Los Angeles at the time was not good at all. I had gotten laid off from my first full-time job after just a few short months of being there. There wasn't as much opportunity or even brands that worked out of Los Angeles back then as there is now. So I think they just recognized that I had studied this field and in order for me to put all my hard work to use, I would have to move to do that. But I think really that's what it was. And then slowly we've been able to see that happening more and more, that parents are becoming more okay with that. And I applaud that. I think it was definitely a little late in coming and frustrating. I know for a lot of our young Assyrian females who've wanted to go off and, you know, start building their life and their career and so on. But again, that's something that wisdom comes with age as well and growing up. And I can understand why because of everything that's happened to us as an Assyrian nation and people, I can understand why parents want to keep their kids close to home. Mm-hmm. What sort of lessons did you learn from your experience of living on your own as well as living in different parts of, we'll say the U.S. because we'll talk about Sweden later. One of the biggest lessons I learned in New York was how to be responsible for myself and take care of myself. I knew, of course, that if Worst comes to worst, I always had a home to go back to, of course. So it's always nice to have that safety net, obviously. But I really took it upon myself to be self-sufficient and be independent and lean into those independent tendencies that I had always had and to work on my own and, you know, pay all my own bills. And my dad would say he had the saying like, which means their head got hit in a thousand places until you learn whatever lesson it is that you need to learn or your initial period of struggling with something. But yeah, I think the biggest lesson I take from living on my own was learning how to take care of myself and not just financially or career wise, but also I think you need to take the time to look inside and really grow as a person and and learn about yourself. So often when we grow up, our parents are the ones that usually teach us like our morals, our values. And in particular with being a Syrian, they also teach us what it means to be a Syrian. And perhaps that's one of the reasons why they want to keep us so close and distance and keep us home as much as possible because 
when you leave, there's a level of uncertainty. So once you left your household and started to live on your own, did you have a change in perception of identity? I wouldn't say it was so much a change in perception of identity. As I said, Assyrian nationalism and pride was so instilled in us that that was never a question. But I can say that I took a little bit of a break. Everything in our lives was very Assyrian-centered. And as you said, when you kind of go off on your own, it kind of gives you a chance to have some breathing room and, and assess things for yourself. But I think what happened with me, and I always say this, speaking to groups of Assyrian parents as well, is that if you plant that seed of nationalism and love for your people in your children when they're very young, I believe they're always going to come back to it. So I came back to Assyrian work, not really came back, but I came to Assyrian work as an adult with so much more passion and so much energy and wanting, like just this desire to do things that I think it's, it's a wonderful thing to actually want to do that. What moment was it that you were like, okay, I'm reinvigorated and I'm ready to go back into this full force? I would say in 2010, when I joined my dad for a few days here in Sweden and Brussels, and we had a seminar at the European Parliament in Brussels speaking about Assyrians' rights. And then here in Sweden, they had an honor ceremony, honoring ceremony for my dad uh, for his work for the nation for the past, at that point, I think it was 45, maybe almost 50 years. I always say that's the trip that changed my life because that was where I really saw what my dad did when he was out with all the, on these at these different Assyrian events and, and I could see firsthand what he was doing and how he was speaking to people and how inspired people were by him and all the communication that he had with the youth. That was the first time that I saw someone from the older generation actually wanting to sit down and speak with the youth and let them have a platform and encouraging them to be proud of their nation and to work for their nation. And my dad was sick at the time, and he was known for saying he would travel with his little bag of all his, like, chemo medicines. And I would always be, for those five days of the trip, I literally was begging him every day, okay, Bob, you have to go sleep now. Like, you haven't slept all day. You've been going from meeting to recording to video to whatever, and you have to rest like you're sick. And so finally, I think he got tired of me saying that to him every day. And he was just like, okay, Zalge, this gives me life. This is helping me. So don't worry about me and don't worry about my sleeping or any of that. I am okay. And that trip in so many ways just really opened my eyes to what he had been doing all his life, to how much respect he had in the community and to how much of a difference he made. And it was just very inspirational for me. And that really was my, my moment. I want to know a little bit, and I think the listeners would want to know a little bit about your father and how he got involved in Assyrian nationalism. So my dad was born in 1945, and he was born in Girkeshamo, and when he was young, around schooling age, his family moved to Kamishli um, so that he could start going to school. And both of those are in Syria? Yes. And so in Kamishli, around the late 50s, early 60s, the Mtakasto was born, the Syrian Democratic Organization. And my dad started working with them. Okay, I've heard different things anywhere from the age of 15 to 17. And so he was the second generation of, you know, of the Mtakasto, I don't know what to call it, group or board. And so that's how he initially... And at the time, the Pakasto was, of course, this underground movement because it was the Middle East in the 60s and pan-Arabism was, was very popular back then. And, you know, nothing that was seen as a, as a threat to, to the politics of the time could be, could be done in the open. So it feels very important to me to be reminded and to remind others of the fact that nationalism decades ago was not exactly the easiest thing to do. I mean, these people, they put their life on the line for us to be able 
to be able to carry our flag so freely now and to be able to say whatever we want to say and to not have to hide messages and, and things like that. So I I think that's something that we should always remember to remind us where we came from. And then that's just, you know, one or two generations back. Think about what our people in the Seifo had to had to withstand in order for us to be here to be able to call ourselves Assyrian. So we have a lot of rich history that I think we need to continuously draw on and not forget where we came from and who we came from. Especially that being modern Assyrian history. You know, this isn't something where we're talking about centuries ago. This is something within our lifetime. So yeah, I I, I agree. It is absolutely important to know and not forget. So his involvement in ADO as a second, would we call it second generation? Second generation, yes. Yeah, second generation. What was that like? So I think what happened with the second generation when they came in, they gave new life to what the people before them had started. In Syria, I believe that was the first modern example of nationalistic feeling in the Assyrian community. So from my understanding, the second generation kind of wanted to put more action into what the first generation had already set, but they were kind of like very energetic and raring to go. For example, one of the most important things that they worked on, I don't know if you know this, or if most people know this, but in Western Assyrian, in Marboyo back then, so this was like 50s, 60s in Syria, we were not allowed to sing at our weddings or parties in Assyrian because we did not have a modern Assyrian song. Or what would be sung? Or would there be any music? So there would be singing in Arabic, Turkish, Kurdish, and Armenian. Wow. Yep. not know that. Yep. And then one of the most important things that the ADO wanted to do back then was to have modern Western Assyrian songs because they felt it was a very important way of preserving our heritage and our musical folkloric tunes and our history. And so they essentially started that movement of, you know, they started writing songs. So that's how my dad started writing songs. He was one of the guys from the Mtakasto that they charged with writing these songs and finding singers and finding people to sing them and then record a cassette all together. And, and Habib Musa at the time was, I believe, 13 or 15 years old, something like that. So they essentially like, you know, brought him in, recruited him to work with them and to sing to sing these songs. And there was others, and I don't know everybody's name and exact role, but that's just one example of a project that, that they did that if it were not for their work, 60 years ago or 70 years ago, we would not, now at an Assyrian wedding, like we would not be singing Western Assyrian songs at all. That is a significant step forward in our culture because had that not happened, the assumption is that up until now, any of the weddings, any celebrations would be done in languages that are not of our own. Exactly. And then not just not of our own, but in several cases uh, of our oppressors. So it's a very big honor to be able to sing or to listen to at our weddings, uh, Marboya songs for me. I watched uh, his Aturaya Khata poem when he recited it at the unveiling of the Seifo monument in Sydney back in 2010. I watched that earlier today and I can never watch that and not have it on <laughs> full volume. إن بقروخ بني إيكاوت من دمباتت ديدي أمرت بتجوب لخ بشاري روتا لتيارايا ولتخمنايا لبني دشتا ولبني طورا
یعقوبای او کل دانای او نسترنای او رسپترای او ابزیلی ون او بقال رام اب تامر قاتخ اختی ایون عطورای Slowly, like increasing the energy, saying the words the same time that he is. تخبط خيي مو بتلاوش إيكب ما يتهج لتخمن كتبر منه بتاتج ونقب طيني شكب تمر شرارة لبو بإيدو وكتاوو منه بخضاريلي ومكروزيلي بإيتو تآتر بكيان آتر بخيلو دم بشمد آشر وبماريلي أنا أنا برين من قنبريا أي أر أو أها شمشة أنا وين من قمزونة لتلي موتا لتلي رمشة أنا إيون كخوض آطر قبط نهر بالبوصيون أنا إيون آلاها آشر قغل الدوري مخدوريون أنا وين شرايد بحر الألمتيو المنهوريون مجد إديوم أنا لتن I'm slowly like letting the energy take you over and then by the end just like shouting at the at the end you just get so into it. And by the time I turned, like it was finished today, I was just thinking that it's so invigorating and it's just so, it really gets you in your heart and you just want to go out and do everything you can for the Assyrian nation after listening to that. It's just amazing. I think he had such a gift of rallying people and inspiring them and telling them the truth. I think he could get away with a lot of things that other people maybe couldn't get away with, speaking to people straight up. Because I think he never said it in, in like a jerky way. It was always just very matter of fact, and this is what the situation is. And and I think we need, as a people, sometimes we need to hear that to kind of get ourselves set back on the right track. So there's, we have Assyrian nationalists all over, and there's people that can like would self-identify as being an Assyrian nationalist or being an Assyrian activist. What was different about your dad? I mean, I would definitely say he was a nationalist and an activist and a poet. But interestingly enough, when we used to say to him sometimes that he's a poet, he would say that he's not and that he was just someone who used poetry to get a message to his people. Mm. So that's very interesting for me to look back on now as an adult and and just think about he really lived... Assyrianism, that's really, really who he was. And he was willing to put everything for his nation. How was it that people, because what what I'm trying to get at is like, there's people in the US, in Canada, in Sweden, in Brussels, in Syria, in Iraq, in Iran, people all over the world knew who your dad was. And so what, what was it about your dad that attracted this knowledge and and informing people about him and having people want to know more about him, inviting him to events all over the world? I don't know. I mean, at the cost of sounding someone who was very biased, he just had something. He was very charismatic and he could really draw people in and he really listened to people. He had a way of getting people who maybe had different opinions to all gather around the table and and at least start a dialogue. He had a great sense of humor. <laughs> he was very down to earth. He gave credit where credit was due. I mean, as a leader, he had so many good qualities. He was so humble. And I think he just had a genuine, I think that's what it is. He was just very genuine and very authentic. And he had that real love for and pride in his nation and his people and and. I don't think you can make that up. And I think people see that. We can learn a lot from that. Going back a little bit, you mentioned that your dad had a strict rule at home that you can't speak anything but Maraboyo in the house. And I've been thinking about language a lot more these days and its significance as it pertains to our cultural connectedness. Like if we were to rank cultural pieces that make us more 
or less connected to our culture, such as food and dancing, where would where would language lie? Because you're coming from a family or a household where you know the language fluently. Like how connected or I guess not, does that make you feel to the culture? And what significance does language have? Language is very important. It's one of the most significant things in connecting us to our culture. I hear a lot of young Assyrians who grew up in diaspora who cannot speak fluent Assyrian complain or say that it makes them feel as if they're somehow further from their family or essentially that they're missing a communication component. And I think that's the most important thing when it comes to language is that you it allows you communication with your fellow Assyrians. So, for example, for me, even though I understand the Eastern dialect, I can't speak it as fluently as I'd like. And honestly, nothing pains me more than having to speak to another Assyrian in either English or Arabic, either because I don't speak their dialect or they don't speak mine. I think with this new generation, uh, people who are now in their 20s and 30s, I think because we have connected more, One of the good things to come out of diaspora is that when we do find each other, we tend to to want to really work on and build our heritage and our culture. So I know a lot of Madanhoye that have learned to speak Maharboyo and vice versa. So I think it's getting better now, but I would say there needs to be a bigger push in all of us speaking both dialects just so that we can communicate with each other because I think it really gives you that deeper sense of belonging when you can communicate with someone in your own language. It's just something beautiful that once you experience it, you you don't want to use any other language when you know you could use your own. Yeah. And it's something that I definitely think about now more that we have a daughter and I've always heard and I've always known like, yes, language is important. Language is important. Language is important. But honestly, it's through narratives of people who grew up without the language that makes me have a newfound appreciation of our language. Like I remember interviewing an elderly Assyrian man in one of our podcast episodes in Chicago, and he was talking about how sad he was that now that he's older, that there was a point in time where his mom used to speak to him in Assyrian and then it just stopped because I guess he had used or he had spoken in Assyrian outside of the home to someone and they didn't understand. And so they didn't want to confuse him. And so they just started to speak English with him. And so he was saying how if he could go back and one thing that he would change, it would be that he wished that his mom would speak to him more so that he would know the language. So when I hear those narratives, honestly, those are the things that push me more of, oh, wow, this is really serious. There's something here that's very significant that if it's not continued, that there is a sense of a a missing piece. And so that's like the bigger push for me to want to speak to our daughter in it so that she knows it. Now, whether she learns or whether she continues to want to speak that in the future, doesn't matter. I, you know, that's not really something that we have control over. But one thing that we can do is at least instill her with that language so that she has it and she can choose what she wants to do with that, but she won't then have a regret later on in life of, man, I wish my parents spoke to me in Assyrian. That way I would know it. Otherwise, now I have to you know, go scratching and finding different ways to pick up what I wish I had known years ago. Right. And I think it's very difficult to learn it later in life. I do have some friends who have learned it later, but it was always through a lot of personal effort and their own personal dedication. But why not give that gift to your child? Because it's a lot easier to learn something when you're when you're a kid. And even if, as you said, once your children grow up, you don't really have control over them, whether they continue to speak it or not. But I think this goes back to what I was saying earlier, is that if you plant that very strong base, children, as they grow up, are always going to come back to uh, the values and the traditions that you taught them. And I think there's always going to be a possibility of naysayers around you when you're that one diehard person in the family, maybe who really pushes to speak Assyrian and to not have English in the home and so on. And to that, I would say just fight it. You have to be the strong one. Don't listen to them. Continue to speak your language because it's one of the most beautiful gifts that you have. And I think 
even if it might be hard sometimes, I think it the rewards are so big and and I think even our children at the end of the day will will thank us for it. Thank you for sharing that. Now, I know that what year was it that your father had passed away? 2013. I know that within the last few years, you had decided to make the move from Los Angeles to Sweden. And I remember when I was listening to your interview with Mariam Shamalta, one thing that you said was that ever since you'd moved to Sweden, you have felt so much more connected to him. I'm curious to know, is that stemming from that time in 2010 when you went on the trip with him to Sweden and Brussels? Absolutely. At first it was subconscious, but now I see very clearly that I feel closer to him here because he had such a large footprint in Sweden, in Södertälje. He used to visit very often, he used to have all types of meetings and lectures and different Fulhone and Thonoye here. And so that was part of the reason for my move. And the larger main reason being that I wanted to be closer to my culture. So what does that mean? I always say that because the U.S. is so big, we have pockets of Assyrian communities, but they don't feel as tangible to me as they do in Europe. And I could only ever attribute that to the geographical closeness here versus the distance in the U.S. and Canada. I'm sure there could be other factors involved as well, but here in Södertälje, I really feel like you get a real sense of an Assyrian community here. I mean, if you speak to a Swedish person, they know who Assyrians are. You don't have to go into that spiel that we always have to go through in the U.S. when we meet someone. Like I used to do that at the beginning when I would meet Swedes here and they just like stand there looking at me waiting for me to finish. And then halfway through, I'd be like, oh yeah, but you already know this. Like you have a lot of Assyrians. <laughs> so I don't need to give you this history lesson. The population of Assyrians in Södertälje. In I moved here, it was my understanding it was somewhere between 30 and 33,000. And I think that's Södertälje itself, not all of Sweden. I'm very bad with numbers, but it is the largest Assyrian community that we have in Europe. Okay. And where is Södertälje geographically located in Sweden? So it's about 30 kilometers south of Stockholm. Do you by chance know the history of how Assyrians began to migrate there? First Assyrians came from Turabdin in the late 60s. Turabdin is where? Turabdin is in Turkey, southeastern Turkey. Mm -hmm. And since they came, I'm not sure if they first came for work opportunities. I have heard that. But ever since they came, they basically built Södertälje to what it is today. And they were able to, you know, become entrepreneurs and they own several of the businesses in Södertälje and Stockholm, which when I found that out, again, some this is something that to an Assyrian who grew up in Sweden, it's totally normal, like when you're in Stockholm, to walk into a cafe and to hear like the owners or the people behind the counter speaking in Assyrian. And then to find out that they own it. But for me, it's always so exciting. And then again, as the years have gone by, I've kind of tempered it down now where I don't get, oh my God, <laughs> I think I shocked like so many people when I do that to them here over the years. But it's really cool to see that in all the time that Assyrians have been here in Sweden, what they were able to build. And, you know, every community has its problems, of course, but... For me to see how successful Assyrians have been here has been really wonderful. And one of the things that I always say is just to walk in the centrum, like the downtown area of Södertälje and hear Marboyo spoken is, is really amazing for me. I mean, that's something that I missed in the U.S. Or to be walking down the street and to see my cousins like, you know, having coffee in a coffee shop and to join them. I mean, that's what I mean when I say there's a real sense of community, like people still hang out with each other a lot here, which, yeah, I think is a really, really wonderful thing. What were your hopes when you were, before you moved to Sweden? Like, what were you hoping to accomplish during your time there? And um, has that come to fruition? I don't think I had a real set goal or specific things in mind that I wanted to do in terms of but Sorry, Folhone Omtanoya means what? Nationalistic, Assyrian nationalistic work. Polhane Omtanoya. So I think I had an idea and a picture of 
what the movement was like here in Sweden from things that I had heard all through my life and from at that point social media and just having friends who lived in Sweden who were involved in the movement. Unfortunately, after you live somewhere, you start to see things more realistically. And this is not just for Assyrian things, but in terms of of everything in your life, you kind of take off the rose-colored glasses and see things for what they are. So it didn't turn out that, how can I put this in what I hope is a nice way? I think in Sweden, there's a, a bit of a dip right now in in the Assyrian movement, especially with the youth and getting them involved and getting them to work together and to have just activities together and to intermingle and and to just have that same energy that I think they had here in Sweden like back in the 80s. And my hope my hope would be that people can start to look past the differences, educate themselves a little bit that we that working together we can get further than working apart. And yeah, even if you have differences, you can put them aside to present a united front and to work for the cause. So I think that's a little bit lacking right now, but hopefully we'll see an upwards trend where where more people start to come out into nationalistic work and start to do some things. I agree. And I think that's something that we need to see within all of our pockets all throughout the world. I don't think it's a unique doesn't seem like it's a, a unique issue to, to Sweden and Södertälje specifically itself. So maybe the thing is, you know, everything has ebbs and flows and to put an optimistic twist on it because I'm forever the optimist. Maybe it's just a little bit of a dip right now and hopefully the people who are working in the community can start to have a bigger influence and start another movement, like another passionate, energetic movement where we do things in a new way, keeping some of the old stuff that works is totally fine, but to basically not forget who we are. The problem that I see a lot of times, and again, as you said, this is not necessarily specific to Sweden because I would see this even in the U.S. and honestly any of the countries that I would travel to for Assyrian events. It's almost always like anytime you go to a seminar or a lecture or a dukhrono or anything like that, it's almost always the same handful of people in the room that were there the last time you were there, that were there the last time you were there. And it's not very often in not a young crowd. So I think, I don't know honestly how to get past that. I think there's a problem where there's a whole generation that is is not growing up in the way that we were, where I don't know if it's that they're not being exposed to, to these things from when they're younger or if the pull of diaspora is too it's too hard for their parents to push against and and they kind of lose them to wanting to be more western that's right but yeah i feel like there's this generation where we're at a very critical point and we've been saying this for a long time and it's only you know getting worse as time goes on but we're at a very critical point and if we can't awaken some sort of new movement where are we going to be 20 years from now where will we be in 2050 when author is supposed to rise Who's going to do that? Yeah. Zage, how, how are you involved with the Assyrian community there? I've done a few different things since I've come here. I have worked with my Hadro, which is Shota Putha. I was on the board doing youth projects uh, for about a year. I've worked with Assyrians Without Borders for several years now. So Assyrians Without Borders is a Swedish nonprofit organization whose aim is to help our people in our countries of origin, so Iraq, Iran, Syria, Turkey, and Lebanon, to be able to live with pride and to be able to actually make a living and live comfortably there in the homeland. And we do this through humanitarian and developmental projects. So, for example, during the, the war in Syria and we used to send a lot of food and hygiene packages to Qamishli, to the most needy families, for example. We've worked with the Syrian Aid Society of Iraq to provide heat and things like that for the schools. For the Syrian school, Talmim Simkad in Beirut, we've provided desks for the classroom and two school buses. 
course, these are all through donations from the Syrian community here in Sweden, which is wonderful that we've been able to do these projects on an ongoing basis. And then we have other developmental projects as well. For example, we had a youth leadership workshop in Iraq to basically teach the Assyrian youth how to become leaders. We have university scholarships every year for students in the homeland so that they can not have the added financial stress of going to university. Oftentimes, these university students are either from small towns or villages or their parents or their salary doesn't cover their schooling. So, you know, we have different projects that that help people back home. And I love working with them because the projects that we do are, are very tangible and we can, you know, we can see what is being done on the ground. Right. You can see the difference that's being made. Exactly. Is that where is that where your passion lies? I would say so. I've always had a passion for serving, doing humanitarian things. Honestly, what better way to do that than to do it for your own people? Amen. Since your father's passing, how has his passing changed you? <sighs> that's a big one. Oh, goodness. I wish that I had spent more time learning from him when I had the opportunity to do that. And I say that not to bring everybody down. I know that a lot of things, the things that I've learned from my dad are invaluable. And I know there's a lot of things that he instilled in me, even subconsciously, that I can draw on. But I say this so that those of you who do still have these people in your lives Learn as much as you can, spend as much time with them as you can, learn how they think, learn about how their different outlooks and perspectives came to be, look at how they're thinking, do they think outside the box, take from the good behaviors, put aside the things that you don't think work, but really talk to these people that are in your life. Because, yeah, I would say if there's one thing I could change, it would be, it would be that, that I had just had more time to learn from him all the things that he had to offer, all mm -hmm. the knowledge that he had to teach. Yeah, you bring up a really good point. I think often we think that, you know, the people around us and the people in our lives are going to be with us forever or for the foreseeable future until that no longer happens. And so I think that's a very important point. But your father, during his time with us here, had already imparted so much knowledge. It seems like just through his way of life that you were able to see so many pieces and also to learn what it is like to be a good leader, what it is like to be charismatic and to serve the Assyrian community at large. So you should feel very lucky. Yeah. I mean, to have such a father like that, because those are amazing characteristics to be able to pass on to your children and a legacy really that lives on forever. I agree. I really do. I think I actually say this all the time. I'm very blessed that my dad was who he was in that today, like I can jump on YouTube and see videos of him, like where I can feel like he's still, you know, living, breathing, speaking doing what he did best. And people always say that people who pass on haven't really departed there with you all the time. And that's a very hard pill to swallow. You're very straight up with that. But sometimes you see how that really is true. So for example, today I was watching, I thought I've seen like every video there is to see online of my dad, but I discovered one just a couple days ago that I started watching and then had to take a break from so I would stop crying. <laughs> and then I'm watching, I was watching another one earlier today that I haven't seen in years. And so I feel very lucky that I can do that and turn these videos and recordings on and, you know, see his face and hear his voice and, and learn from him. Like I really felt like even though this video was several years old, maybe a decade old at this point, I realized in just those 20 minutes that I watched how much he had gone through and all the knowledge that he lived that we look at as history. So I still feel like he's alive because he's still teaching me things. Beautiful. Zalge, we have listeners from all over the world. If you had one last thing to say to all of them, what would that be? Okay, so my last one thing is last three things. Is that okay? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I was ready for this one. <laughs> so the first thing I would say would be to support Assyrian businesses. 
whether that is shops or websites or artists. And I would say especially the new young faces in Assyrian culture and heritage, whether that is painters or sculptors or writers, entrepreneurs, what have you. Always support an Assyrian first if you can, and all of us can. The second thing I would say is get involved. Start thinking about ways that you can contribute to the Assyrian cause, and that can be in your own way. Really take some time to think about what it means for you. What do you want to help preserve? What do you want to help promote? And think of new and different ways that you can do that and dare to be the person in your group that does that. And last but not least, I would say don't be afraid of others. Don't be afraid to encourage others to do the same. Todi Sagi Zalke, thank you again for allowing me the opportunity to speak with you and have you on the podcast. Todi Sagi Adessa. Thanks so much for tuning in. I hope you enjoyed that episode. If you'd like to learn more about Zelge or connect with her, I've included her Instagram handle in the episode description so you can connect with her that way. You can also visit her website, www.zelge.com. And if you'd like to learn more about her father, the late Malfono Ninos Ajo, a good place to start is his website, www.ninosajo.com. Thanks so much and see you next week.